turning in your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I want to read beginning at verse 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Stop reading there and look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank You um, that when we come to the end of ourselves and we call upon You, we trust You as our Savior, that You lift us out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and You set our feet upon a rock and You establish our going and You put a new song in our heart. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We thank You for the great salvation, so great salvation that You offer to those who deserve so great a death. We pray that You would help us to see the message of the Gospel this morning to see the message of the love and mercy and grace of God that is bestowed upon those who are not worthy of it. We pray that You would speak to any who are here who are lost today, that they would see their need to be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Wednesday night, Brother Dwight brought a very important message on the conversion war. The conversion war, as he explained it, is the war that takes place between ourselves and God. As we try to convert Him and make Him such an one as ourselves. And what Brother Dwight did in that message is point out verses concerning God that don't fit our view of God. And rather than accept them and believe them as they are, and hear and believe the message that's in them, we try to take God's Word and we try to convert it in our minds and we try to convert God into someone with whom we are more comfortable. We've come to this chapter today because this third verse is one that Brother Dwight mentioned Wednesday night and I was talking to him on the phone Thursday morning or Friday morning and I told him that he had stirred me up by his message. 
So if you're looking for someone to blame for today's message, you can blame Brother Dwight. (laughs) This verse that is God's command to King Saul, given to Saul by Samuel. God's command is, Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. We read that as Brother Dwight pointed out, and our natural reaction is, why would God do that? Why would a loving God give such a command to destroy all that they have? Spare them not. Slay man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep and camel and ass. We want to think about that question this morning. Because the answer to it is eternally important. The answer to the question begins with the character of God. Psalm 33 verses 4 and 5 say, For the word of the Lord is right. The word of the Lord is right. That includes 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. And all of His works are done in truth. That includes the works that He's commanding in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 86 and verse 15 says, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. Psalm 145 and verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. This is the character of God. And He always acts in accordance with His character. And as we read these verses there in the book of Psalms, I don't see any exclusions. We don't read that the earth is full of the goodness of God except in the land of the Amalekites. We don't read that the Lord is a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy except to the Amalekites. Nor do we read that God is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy except to the Amalekites. And it's like that because Second Chronicles 19 and verse 7 says, There is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons. We read that again in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, For there is no respect of persons with God. God is full of compassion and gracious. He's long-suffering. He's plenteous in mercy. He's full of compassion. He's slow to anger. He's of great mercy toward every human being that has lived, that is living, and that will live in the future. 
all through the Old Testament, we see this character of God. We see His compassion and His graciousness and His long-suffering. We see how He's slow to anger and of great mercy. Turn back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and let's read beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. And yet his days shall be in 120 years. This third verse is a very critical verse. Notice that God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. Those are important words. They're interesting words as we think about them. Because they tell us that here before the judgment of the worldwide flood... Before God gives the command here to destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass, every living thing. Before that happens, His Spirit is striving with man. One of the meanings of this word strive is to plead, to plead a cause. And the cause that God's Spirit was pleading was the need for men to repent. To believe the message of the Gospel. The message of the coming Lamb of God which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. He was the first preacher of the Gospel. The first preacher of the Gospel when he told in Genesis 3.15 of the coming seed of the woman whose heel would be bruised on the cross of Calvary. The gospel message, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord in Genesis 3.21 when He shed the blood of a lamb there and made coats of skin and clothed Adam and Eve. This is the message that the Spirit of God was pleading, pleading with men to believe. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. That word man, if you'll notice that word, it means mankind. It means every man, every woman. And we point it out because it's another example of how there are no exceptions to the compassion and graciousness and long-suffering and slowness to anger and great mercy of God. There is no respect to persons with God. My spirit shall not always strive with man. Every man. This is an Old Testament example of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 where we read that the Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, 
but that all should come to repentance. Now there's a time period connected here with the striving of the Spirit of God. A time period connected with the long-suffering of God. It's 120 years. Why 120 years? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20 that the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. And so that suggests that this 120 years is the time that it took Noah to prepare the ark. Peter tells us that this 120 years is an example of the long-suffering of God. The long-suffering of God that waited in the days of Noah. And what was happening in these 120 years? Well, the Spirit of God was striving. He was pleading with men. And He was doing it through the preaching of Noah, among others. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2 and verse 5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah wasn't only a builder. Noah was a preacher of the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Noah pointed men and women and young people to the only ark of safety, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how by faith they could enter into Him and be saved. But what we need to see is that the message of the gospel was not just being preached for these 120 years that Noah was building the ark. Look back a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 4. Uh, the way your Bible may be such that you can just look across the page. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25. And Adam knew Eve, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. This verse tells us that at the birth of Seth's son Enos, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That language is very instructive. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Paul asks these questions in the next verses. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Men call upon the name of the Lord and are saved when God sends forth preachers preaching the gospel of peace. And lost people hear that message from the preacher that is sent by God and they can believe the message and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. This is what's happening here. And this 
begins at the birth of Enos. Enos was born, uh, we've talked about the uh, genealogy here in uh, Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5. Enos was born in the year 235 from creation. And all through Genesis chapter 5, we read about the preachers. The preachers that God sent forth to preach the gospel of peace. To bring glad tidings of good things so that men could hear and believe and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And there were those who were calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. That's what verse 26 of chapter 4 says. That sending and preaching began in the year 235 from creation and it continues down to the year of the flood. The year 1656 from creation. And one of the preachers that God sent was a man by the name of Methuselah. Methuselah was um, God's clock, if you will. He was God's way for these people to understand the times and the seasons. We know Methuselah as the oldest man to ever live. He lived for 969 years. And God kept him alive because God is full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy. He's gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. That's why Methuselah lived so long. It was God's mercy allowing him to live because when he died, when he died, it shall come. That's what his name means. And what was going to come when he died was the judgment of the flood. Now we mention this because it's not just 120 years of mercy and grace and long-suffering to the people of the pre-flood world. It's 1,421 years of mercy and grace and long-suffering to the people of the world. Only eight people believe the message. Only eight. Noah and his family. The rest of the men and women, young people, rejected the message of the gospel. They rejected God's love and mercy and grace. They rejected His long-suffering. And all that was left for them was the judgment of God. All that was left was God's pronouncement. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. All that was left was God's command to destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass, every living thing. But it doesn't come for 1,421 years. That is long-suffering. 
That is compassion. That is being slow to anger. That is being of great mercy. Turn over, if you will, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Here in this chapter, God is making a covenant with Abraham to give him the land of Canaan. Look at chapter 15 and verse 18. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the Rephaims, the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. I've given you all of this land. Now look back at verse 13 of this chapter. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. That, of course, is referring to the land of Egypt and the children of Israel's exodus from Egypt. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. Abraham's seed is going to come back to the land in the fourth generation. Why? Why? Well, notice these next words. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Why would the Lord tell us that? I believe He tells us that to underscore in our minds that He's full of compassion and gracious and long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and slow to anger, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because the Lord is giving the Amorites and these nations of Canaan some 462 years to repent. To turn to Him before the children of Israel come back into the land. Now, the Lord could have just given Abraham the land that day. He could have just said, I'm going to blot out these sinners, these people who have rejected me, these people who have turned to idolatry there here in this land of Canaan. I'm just going to wipe them out right now, Abraham. But he doesn't do that. He gives them 462 years. I believe His Spirit is going to strive and plead with them for every day of those 462 years before His judgment is poured out upon them. Just like we just got through talking about Sodom 
and the destruction of Sodom. And the thing that stands out to me there is this long-suffering of God to those people. Look at, we're real close, look at Genesis chapter 18 and verse 21. Verse 20, let's read there. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous. This is God's pronouncement upon these people. He knows what they are. But look at verse 21. I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. He didn't have to go down to know. But he said, I'm going to go down. I'm going to go down and see. It was another opportunity for the people of Sodom to repent. This is the pattern that we see all through the New Testament, or rather, rather the Old Testament. And that brings us to Amalek. Turn over to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. children of Israel have left Egypt and they come in their journey to a place called Rephidim. There's no water there. God brought them to that place. And God complained, or rather the people complained to Moses. In fact, as we see in verse 4, they did more than complain. Moses said, they'd be almost ready to stone me. And so Moses cries to the Lord, and the Lord tells him in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before thee, there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God performs a miracle here. This is why He brought them. He wanted to preach these people a message through this miracle. And this miracle that took place here is a picture of the cross of Calvary. It's a picture of the time when on the cross, the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ would be smitten. And out of that rock would come the water of life that makes the invitation from heaven possible. Let him that thirsteth say, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That's the message of the Gospel that's being preached here. Now look at verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. We're introduced to Amalek in Genesis chapter 36 where we read about his birth. But this is the first time that we see him 
doing anything. This is the first time that we see Him uh, in, in action, if you will. And what is the first action that we see Amalek taking? It's fighting with Israel in Rephidim. And this is not some random attack. We read back in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3 how the Lord said, He laid in wait. He laid in wait. Rephidim, this was the place where Amalek chose to fight with Israel. He chose to fight in the place where the rock was smitten and the water of life was pouring forth. There's a thought that comes to mind as we read this 8th verse. And that is that Amalek has no regard for God's miraculous provision. There was no water in Rephidim, not only for Israel, But there was no water there for Amalek. And yet, here he is rejecting the rock. No regard for the person and the work of Christ. In fact, he's fighting against that just exactly like you are here this morning if you're lost. You are fighting against God's miraculous provision for you. And His invitation, whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Amalek is not going to drink of that water. He wants to keep anyone else from drinking of that miraculous water. And so the battle follows. Look at verse 9. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out. Fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the other side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Can't read that verse, that twelfth verse without noting how Moses sat on the stone. Alright, in verse 8, verse 6, he drank of the stone. And in verse 8, he's sitting on the stone. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. We receive Him by drinking the water. We live the Christian life by resting upon Him. That's the lesson here. Verse 13, And Joshua discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now look at verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now, do you think that Amalek heard this pronouncement of the judgment of God? I believe he did. Why? Because God is full of compassion and gracious, He's long suffering, He's plenteous in mercy, He's slow to anger. 
He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I believe Amalek heard this sentence of judgment from God. Now, the chronology in my Bible says that the year here in Exodus chapter 17 is 1491 B.C. Now look over at Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. The year is 1451. Forty years have passed. The wandering of the children of Israel is about to end. They're about to enter into the land of Canaan. Look at verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto thee, by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt. How he met thee, by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. Here we are forty years after Amalek fought with Israel at Rephidim. Forty years after he attacked the rock and the water and the people of God when they were faint and weary. Forty years after the judgment of God is pronounced upon him. And there's been no change in his life. No change in the life of his people. He's still in the same condition of heart. And that condition of heart is here in verse 18. He feared not God. He feared not God. In the face of the message from heaven concerning the judgment of God, that God was going to utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, Amalek feared not God, and that never changed. In Judges 6 and verse 3, Israel's in the land. And we read there, And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east Even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth and left no sustenance for Israel. Neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. Amalek feared not God. In Genesis 10, or rather Judges 10 and verse 12, we read that the Zidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites that oppressed Israel Still oppressing. Amalek feared not God. He had no fear of attacking the rock and the water and the people of Israel. He had no fear of the judgment of God. When I think of Amalek, the verse that comes to mind is Romans chapter 1 and verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And yet from Exodus chapter 17, where we see the first actions of Amalek against God, to 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3, let's go back there. To 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. And God's command 
to destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. From Exodus 17 to 1 Samuel 15.3 is a period of 404 years. Why didn't the Lord just utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven in 1491 B.C.? Why does He wait 404 years till we come to 1 Samuel 15 to give that command? God waited 404 years because He's full of compassion, because He's gracious, because He's long-suffering, because He's plenteous in mercy and slow to anger, because He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't you read this third verse and blame God. Read this third verse and blame Amalek. Because Amalek and the Amalekites despised the riches of His goodness They despised His forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing, willingly ignorant, that the goodness of God was leading them to repentance. Amalek and the Amalekites accounted that the long-suffering of God was salvation, that they were safe, that they were free from judgment, that the bitterness of death was past. We read Agag, the king. That was his thought. The king of the Amalekites. The bitterness of death is past. They misinterpreted the long-suffering of God. And so their heart was fully set in them to do evil until there was nothing left for them. But 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. There was nothing left for them but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. This third verse is in the book not just to show us Amalek, but to show us our own hearts. To speak to the hearts of those who are lost. To speak to those who are under the pronouncement of the judgment of God. And that's you if you're lost today. Destroy all that they have and spare them not. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment... In Matthew 10 and verse 28, the Lord Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. How many times has hearing the message of the judgment of God not moved you any more than it didn't move Amalek. It's because you fear not God. And yet, in the face of your rebellion, there stands the Lord, full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy, 
There He stands, the good God, the innocent God, the loving God, full of compassion, slow to anger, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're lost today, don't read this third verse and blame God. Don't read this third verse and see Amalek. Read this third verse and see yourself. Stop despising the riches of His goodness. Stop despising His forbearance and long-suffering. Stop despising His goodness that's leading you to repentance. Stop accounting that the long-suffering of God is salvation. Stop accounting that the long-suffering of God means that somehow He is approving of your life. He's approving of your sin. Stop accounting. The long-suffering of God is meaning that you're safe and free from judgment so that your heart is fully set in you to do evil until there's nothing left but 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. Till there's nothing left but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. This morning, before the goodness of God stops leading you to repentance, how long has He been doing that in your life? Right where you are, lay down your rebellion and stop fighting against God. That's what Amalek was doing. Stop fighting against God and cry out to Him to be merciful to you, a sinner, and He'll save you. And He'll give you the gift of eternal life. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that You would help us to see this morning in this third verse of 1 Samuel, the goodness and the mercy of God. How that You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As we look at Your dealings with the people before the flood and the people in the land of Canaan, the people of Sodom, Amalek and the Amalekites, slow to wrath, plenteous in mercy. The problem is not you. The problem is our own deceitful and wicked hearts. We pray that you would speak to any here who are lost today, that they would see their need to be saved. Before it's too late, your spirit will not always strive with man. Your spirit will not always plead And while it is called today, we pray that they would trust You as their Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.